Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hi. Today we've got some new releases to talk about. Again, it's fall and there's good movies all over the place. Uh, And then we're going to have a special Thursday interview. I talked to Felix Gillette and John Koblen about their new book about HBO, the entire history of the network. Uh, So we'll hear that toward the end of the episode. I have been saying for weeks that I wanted to talk about the Golden Globes, and I still really want to talk about the Golden Globes. So this week, we're going to do it um, because the Golden Globes are back this year. And when you start thinking too much about Oscar contenders, you kind of forget that there is this entire like oddball comedy and musical category to start thinking about. Um, So... I am writing a piece this week. I haven't written it yet, but hopefully by the time you hear this, it's out about Javier Bardem and Lyle Lyle Crocodile, which I've already talked about in the Best Original Song category. Um, But that makes me want to start talking about Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, which I think has the potential to be the weirdest of all of the Golden Globes categories looming ahead of us. Um, David, I think you've done some diving into this category, too. (laughs) Is this the most chaotic of what might be a very chaotic Golden Globes? There are other categories that will give it a run for its money, but... (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, it's it's one of those categories that the Globes love to um, throw curveballs in where you have a mix of just huge stars and movies that would not and should not really get awards traction necessarily. <laughs> and, you know, bona fide Oscar contenders um, who are absolutely in the race and who, if the Golden Globes don't nominate them here, will have a lot of, uh, will be raising a lot of eyebrows uh, while not necessarily making that much of an impact on their chances long term. Well, maybe we should talk more generally about like what are the comedy or musical films here? Because as usual, there's some like genuine Oscar contenders like Banshees of Anna Sharon or Glass Onion that I think will qualify. But then um, what, are, what are the outliers, David? Well, you have to figure that um, a movie like Babylon, which seems to have comic elements could go either way or everything or everywhere all at once too. So, you know, you have, you could conceivably see this category filled up with Oscar contenders, although I think it's TBD on, you know, how far they will go. But then you've got movies like Hustle, which is an Adam Sandler vehicle that Netflix has been pushing uh, for him for best actor that could pop up in a few places, given that Adam Sandler is 
a comedy icon and the Globes like their comedy icons. Uh, you have movies like The Menu, which is, you know, really primed to be a big crowd pleaser. The one classically Globes movie that I'm really looking at is Ticket to Paradise. Yeah. Which we've, t- which we've talked about, Katie, because it is big stars, big fizzy rom-com, successful. Yeah, it's making real money, which I don't know if anyone expected. How, how can they resist giving this, like, five nominations? I, I just don't know. Yeah, Richard, you are our, our number one Ticket to Paradise anticipator around here. Is that alone going to get you watching the Globes? I mean, I'd be curious to see. You know, that feels like old school. I mean, I feel like I also would be equally invested in, like, something like Amsterdam getting a bunch of nominations somehow, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I don't put much stock in the Golden Globes giving awards to worthy things, but it's fun to watch them <laughs> give awards to great weird things, you know, or at least nominations. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad the ticket to paradise is doing well. And I'm sure that will help it at least a little bit in the, the globes hunt. If anyone is even in that hunt. Speaking of weird, I would love to see, and this is a stretch, but triangle of sadness show up in the comedy. Yeah. Race I think it's totally possible. I think that'd be really exciting and, and uh, probably a little helpful to its Oscar chances. Although we, we still don't really know how much people are going to invest in this, I guess. Um, you know, I've heard people are going to show up, but I don't know how much weight this having that nomination or win is going to carry this year. Yeah. Well, also the HFPA voting body is very different from the last time. So, you know, I'm looking back and seeing them nominating Deadpool and Florence Foster Jenkins in the same category or mm-hmm. like, you know, Hamilton, which I can't believe they nominated <laughs> <laughs> in the musical or comedy, um, but I just, I don't know if those if all the new people are going to do the same thing. I don't know who they will vote more like. It's really such an unknown. Yeah, big question mark. Who knows? I mean, this, when looking at the actress category in comedy and musical, that you know, you mentioned everything, everywhere, all at once being kind of an edge case, David. I can't imagine why they wouldn't go for comedy here if they're going to take this seriously, because yeah. then you have Michelle Yeoh pretty much guaranteed to win in that category, which I imagine would clear the way for Kate Blanchett to win in the drama category. It's always fun when you get a split that way between two perceived frontrunners. Um, and David, you're the one who pointed out to me that her competition in that actress category could be incredibly fun. <laughs> it's it's legends only. Legends only. <laughs> Leslie Manville, Julia Roberts, Emma Thompson, all would figure in here in a normal Globes year. I think this is a really good test case because you have people like Kiki Palmer, who absolutely deserves a Globe nod for Nope. She is so hysterical and compelling in the movie. It feels like it's what the category was built for before the Globes <laughs> did their own thing, you know, sure. it's for this kind of performance and to highlight it, especially since she's getting out there, it would be a, a necessary and, and worthwhile lift. Um, or someone like, you know, Regina Hall and Hunk Your Jesus, Save Your Soul, another really funny, really strong performance uh, in a movie that's just not seeming to get awards traction otherwise for understandable reasons. Um, so that's the divide, right? Because you have, you can't deny how great Leslie Manville or Emma Thompson are in their movies or how Julia Roberts is in Julia Roberts' new movie. Um, but there's a, a lot of interesting work also skirting the category's edges, which happens every year. And it usually happens that the interesting stuff doesn't get in. <laughs> I saw someone on Gold Debris throw out Bella Ramsey for Catherine Called Birdie, um, which I can't oh, remember who else has seen besides me. Um, but I think she's terrific in it, and I really liked that movie. I have no idea, again, how likely it is because we don't know what the Globes are anymore. But that would be an incredibly fun nomination. Uh, yeah, she's great. The movie's great. So that's another one that I would be happy to see surprise. Yeah. 
Rebecca, is there anything that you're like rooting for at the Globe specifically, which feels like an odd question to ask, but <laughs> does feel relevant? I do feel like it's a real tragedy. There's not a musical in the race this year for me to, <laughs> I know, to root crazy. for. I mean, Lyle L. Crocodile. Lyle I'm sorry. Crocodile. I'm sorry, Katie. I forgot about Lyle L. Crocodile. Also, Pinocchio's musical E. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't. I guess that would go in that category. You're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio here. No, no, Robert Zemeckis' masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, yes, I, I the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio has has a few original songs, and it's. I, I just saw it over the weekend. I thought it was pretty incredible and beautiful. So, who wouldn't say who would say no to Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, we'll have to talk that, about that one soon because that does seem like a, um, a kind of a sort of late season crasher that we didn't necessarily have on our radar as much, but it has won over a lot of people, not just you, David. I do think, um, as you were saying with the lead actress race, the lead actor could also sort of be split between you know, Brendan Fraser in drama and Colin Farrell in mm-hmm. comedy. And I feel like those are becoming the two front runners in that category. So it's a similar thing where it'd be kind of nice to see them both win and do. Actually, we don't know if Brendan Fraser's going to go. So I guess that's a bigger question. But that's a huge question that I am very interested because like, presumably someone's just going to have to get Fraser to talk about it. Um, just to remind people, he came out um, accusing a former HFPA member of sexual assault a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. I think well was it during the first round of Me Too or even before then? Just before, um, yeah. So, and he hasn't really talked about the Globe specifically in this whale campaign. The whale campaign, as we talked about, has been pretty quiet. But yeah, him and Tom Cruise both. Tom Cruise gave back his Golden Globes. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's the other one. Uh, and I really am curious about what they do. Um, I, I think there is a way for them to accept being nominated or even win and not go and to not have it be too big a deal. But maybe that drumbeat will get louder once the nominations are actually out. Yeah, there's plenty of times where the uh, winner is not there to accept their award, but obviously everyone's going to be watching a lot closer this time. Yeah. Also, Austin Butler, don't you think he might be in the the comedy musical category? Elvis is sort of a musical that we have in the race this year. I would figure he would be. But there have been a few instances of those more dramatic musicals, especially because it's not really a musical going drama. It's It's gone either way. I th- I forget where Bohemian Rhapsody went. Bohemian Rhapsody won the Golden Globe for drama. That's right. That is right. wild. So, that, yeah, in, in that tradition, <laughs> you could definitely see Austin Butler going drama. And I, I feel like he would be a lock to be nominated either way. Uh, yeah, the 2018 Golden Globes wiki, if you ever fall down this rabbit hole, it's uh, Rami Malek wins actor drama and Christian Bale wins actor and comedy, while actress splits between Olivia Coleman and Glenn Close, um, which, you know, really fueled that incredibly fun Best Actress race. Um, it, it makes me grateful to, for the Globes, I gotta say. It's exciting to think about it. That was the moment that Glenn Close's chances skyrocketed before uh-huh. the shocking fall. I know. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca, you hinted kind of at people saying that they're probably going to go to the Globes, like is the sense that they will get to reclaim their place maybe a little bit weirdly, you know, if Brendan Fraser or Tom Cruise doesn't come, but more or less be back? I think we'll have to see. I've heard some rumblings that, you know, on the advertiser side, things are not shaping up as they used to. People are not jumping to be a part of the show. But from what I've heard, um, the studios and talent are are going to go, but that's sort of the extent of their commitment to this show. So it's definitely a huge test for this. Obviously, we know NBC has only renewed this for one year. So I think there's just a lot riding on on how this turns out. 
Yeah, and the HFPA has announced they're not doing these exclusive press conferences, which used to be a big part of the process. So I, I don't think that they're asking people to kind of specifically campaign for the Golden Globes. It can be more just part of like a regular campaign, which maybe makes it a little bit easier for people to participate without looking like they're necessarily endorsing the organization itself. Yeah, the, it's a weird the, line to walk. The um, press conferences are one of the most controversial things just because of some of the questions that would get asked and whose press conferences were attended and, and things like that. So that makes sense. Um, I think they still have screenings specifically dedicated to voters of this body. So they're still catering to them in that way. But Well, that's true for SAG. For every, every, yeah. Yeah, every voting body has that. So that's not unusual. But I think the press conferences were one of the more painful parts of the process. So I'm not surprised by that. But I think we'll have to sort of wait till this happens and David and I are there to kind of see what the feeling in the room is about this event. Yeah. Will Smith being in the room would be fascinating to me if he's nominated because he won't be able to go to the Oscars. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's, that's I point. didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the uh, emancipation question mark is something we haven't gotten into too much because none of us have seen it. It's really only been screening at these kind of, um, you know, carefully organized events where no press has been invited. But um, yeah, by December 6th, I was just looking. That's the deadline for screening films for the Golden Globes. I guess it will be out there a little bit more. Yeah, if there's one thing the Globes like to do, it is plant their flag mm-hmm. <laughs> where where they're most excited. And this feels like the kind of movie where they can very freely lead and make a kind of statement and <laughs> have a leg up on the Academy in a few ways, if the movie does turn out to be worth considering in that regard. Yeah. Well, Richard, when does New York Film Critics Circle vote? It's going to be that first week of December? We vote on December 2nd, which is a Friday. And... I know we're going to get to see Babylon before then, but I'm not sure about, like, Emancipation or Avatar 2 or, I guess, that Tom Hanks movie that's coming out at the end of the year. Man Called Otto. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like it could be a Globes comedy nominee. Mm -hmm. I I was talking with a friend. I was like, because we were talking about how best actor and even supporting actor feel a little bit iffy right now. And it was like, what if Tom Hanks just gets double nominations (laughs) for these two (laughs) movies that, like, one he's kind of been roundly criticized for and the other we don't know about? Yeah, yeah, Tom Hanks and Elvis. I didn't think about that as a, a supporting actor factor. Um, yeah, so you'll vote on December 2nd. You'll The Globes nominations will be out on December 12th. Um, so there'll be kind of a, a week of Critics Awards leading up to these Globes nominations, which could throw a wrench into everything or could just be a weird outlier. Again, we don't know. The mystery is there. Okay, before we head to our interview at the end of the show, uh, we wanted to talk about a couple new releases. And Richard, you suggested to talk about Causeway, the Apple TV Plus film that premiered at Toronto and is out this week and is um, pretty quiet this season. I think partly reflecting the nature of the movie itself. But um, what did you want to talk about? Well, I just think it's an interesting movie in that, like, it's Jennifer Lawrence's second movie since she's, quote, been back. You know, um, she had Don't Look Up last year. And this is a much different kind of project. It's very small. She was very involved in its making. I think she even said in a Vogue profile that she did some writing on it. So it's just interesting to see her like now in her 30s. She's, you know, she's this is kind of a grown up role where she's playing this um, Army Corps of Engineer engineer who was in an IED attack in Afghanistan and is now trying to recover in New Orleans. 
And it was this tiny little premiere at uh, Toronto, and A24 has it, but they sold it to Apple, and or it's part of their deal with them. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting little curio this season that I think had they maybe held it for Sundance, it would have been made more of an impact because I don't love the movie as it's kind of written and, and, and told, but like I really think that she, Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry as this person that she forms a bond with um, are, are really good in it. And it's exciting to see Lawrence working in this smaller, more considered mode. Yeah, it's much more like Winter's Bone than most of what she's made since breaking out Winter's Bone, which was a big Sundance hit. I think that that festival is a is a perfect comparison. Well, you think about like what she did after Winter's Bone, which was she got wrapped up in the David O. Russell universe. <laughs> she did in the hum- Hunger Games. She did Hunger yeah. Games, um, and then there were some scattered things elsewhere. But like, um, we didn't really get a lot of this sort of you know intimate small indie stuff from her. You know, she went right from Winter's Bone to big, big things. And so it's kind of interesting to see her now that she's taken some time away from the industry. Uh, She's had a kid, um, just doing something quieter and more personal. And I think that, um, you know, while this movie maybe traffics in a few too many cliches, it augurs really good things, hopefully, for her going forward. Um, And obviously, Brian Tyree Henry, who's always so good, is yet again really good in this one. Yeah, David, I was going to let you talk about Brian Terry Henry since I know we've talked about him. I just realized that the Hunger Games universe is the David O. Russell universe, and I was I was processing that for a minute. I think Brian Terry Henry is amazing in this movie, and to Richard's earlier point about Best Supporting Actor, I see no reason why he should not be on any shortlist of five for Supporting Actor. He's really the heart of the movie. He gets, um, I think, the big scene, quote-unquote, as much as this movie can have one, because it's a very small, quiet movie. And, and like Richard, I, I had a lot of problems with the movie overall. Um, I think it's sort of quietly observed to a fault and could use a little bit more meat on its bones. But in terms of what both of them do and, and getting to observe this very intimate character study, it, it's it's moving at times. And it would be interesting to see Jennifer Lawrence say pop back up at the Indie Spirits uh, for this movie, given this trajectory she's had and how this is kind of a full circle moment in, in some way for her career. And I think marks a kind of reset in the types of projects she's going to be doing. Just because the Best Actress race feels beyond Michelle Yeoh and and Kate Blanchett, and I'm not quite sure where Till falls on the budget spectrum because Daniel Deadweiler was nominated for a Gotham Award. But beyond mm-hmm. that, it's a, it's a lot of studio contenders. So she could start popping up at places like that um, just to just to have a different kind of run than Jennifer Lawrence has had in a long time, um, which yeah. would be worth watching. I just want Brian Tyree Henry to have like some big, meaty lead role. He's so great at so these supporting performances, but like, yeah. God, I'm just waiting for it because he just knocks it out of the park every single time. Yeah, it's and I overdue. Feel like, and I want him to like not do like the big transformative like, you know, we were talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, I think he could do it, but like he's so good at being like authentic and present and like a person who you know on screen and like that kind of thing is harder to get noticed than the big flashier transformations. But it's like he's better at it than almost anyone working right now. Um, but it feels like a matter of time, right? Hope so. <laughs> I guess we say that sometimes for people, and then it never happens. So let's <laughs> let's not get overconfident. Give Brian Tyree Henry that huge showcase he deserves. He he did get the Gotham nomination, I believe. So yes, we're, he did. We're we're on our way. The more recognition he gets, I suppose, the closer we get to that kind of role. 
Yeah, the Gotham acting nominations, um, really exceptional in both leading and supporting, but the supporting lineup, especially just, you know, two actors from The Inspection, um, two actors from Women Talking, um, Ki Hu Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once, just in, um, oh, and two actors from Tar, Nina Haas and Noam Merlant. Good lineup. Good job, Gotham's. Oh, and speaking of uh, blonde actresses who have fervent followings, Florence Pugh also has a new movie out um, that has nothing to do with Don't Worry, Darling. Uh, she's in The Wonder, which premiered at Telluride kind of at the real height of the Don't Worry, Darling mania and maybe got overshadowed as a result. But now it's time for it to stand on its own. Um, I haven't seen it, so someone else tell me about The Wonder. I was pretty pulled in by the film. I mean, the premise is Florence Pugh's playing this nurse who... I don't know, David, I don't know what time period this is supposed to be in, but... 19th century. <laughs> yes, yes, there you go. And and she is she is asked to come watch this young girl who claims to not have eaten for, I think, four months or so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the community thinks it's a miracle of God, and Florence Pugh's character as a nurse is like, she's somehow, you know, lying or, or sneaking food or something. And and it's sort of a, a slow unraveling to see how this is happening and also how it affects Florence's character. And and I, I thought the premise was really interesting. And Florence delivers a really strong performance. She reminded me a lot of Kate Winslet in this one especially. But, but you know, the film, I think, didn't quite have the emotional effect I was hoping it would in the end. But, um, you know, if you enjoy watching Florence do a really strong performance, I think this is another way to do that. And it's on Netflix, so you can, you know, watch it at home. Um uh, but yeah, it is a shame she didn't really do much press for it, obviously, because she wasn't doing any press at the time because of what was going on with uh, Don't Worry, Darling. And she was I mean, filming I mean, Dune she was filming Rebecca. Dune, excuse me. <laughs> she was in the desert and unavailable. There are no phones in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with Rebecca completely. It feels like this was the year where Florence Pugh very much affirm that she is a total star and has incredible range, even though both of her projects did not live up to her performances. I think this is a better movie than Don't Worry Darling, for sure. Um, and I love Sebastian Lilio's work. This one, is, it's it's quite slow. And v- again, like Causeway, very quiet. And a lot of its merits are, are ones that you just sort of have to sit with and take in. It doesn't really jump out at you in any, any particular way. I don't think the suspense works as well as the movie maybe thinks it does. I think there's a framing device that is a little wonky and peculiar. Um, but Ari Wegner shot the movie and immediately uh, it sets itself apart with that the cinematography just in the way it kind of tracks Florence's character down these corners and through these fields. It's, it's quite strikingly done. And she's amazing. She holds the screen every second the camera's on it, which is pretty much every second of the movie. And um, that is probably enough for some people. Well, The Wonder will be in some theaters uh, this week, but we'll also be heading to Netflix in the middle of November. I mean, I think to be a Florence Pugh completist at this point is kind of just a good bet. It's a good investment to see everything she does because she's going to be working forever and ever, it seems. So I think... You know, I haven't seen it yet, but I think even despite some hesitations about it, it feels like worth my time. So thank you. Thank you. So now I'm going to share the interview that I did with Felix Gillette and John Koblen, who wrote uh, the history of HBO called It's Not TV. Uh, Richard, I think you also read this book. Um, It feels like very useful reading for anyone who is interested in how we got to where we are and kind of insight in reverse about the HBO that we've all been consuming for years. Um, 
specifically the the extreme maleness of the culture of HBO and their focus in the early years and how that continued to, you know, the nudity on Game of Thrones and possibly also to today. Um, I talked to Felix Quintana about a lot of this, but Richard, was there anything you wanted to add since you've uh, read some of the book too? Just that it's a definitely a worthy read and it, you know, in the process, you know, it's very dense with information, It you know, um, but it's also entertaining and it reminds you, which is maybe a trite thing to say, but I think it is important to reiterate how much HBO completely changed culture with kind of just a few shows in a way. Um, and then to read, yes, about how there is, there were a lot of cultural problems behind that at, at the company makes you question the revolution. Not not that, you know, I think it's brought us somewhere good in terms of content, but um, yeah, I thought it was a really engrossing read. I should also say to set up this conversation that we talked about Chris Albrecht, who is a big figure in the history of HBO. And in this book, um, you know, he was the guy who made The Sopranos, but he also had a history of really terrible behavior to women, to a co-worker in an incident in 1991. And then at an HBO-sponsored event in 2007, he uh, allegedly choked his girlfriend in public um, and left HBO right after that, went on to stars and had been at legendary television. And then... Uh, according to Variety, when this copies of this book started being read by people in early October, he was put on administrative leave by the company and apparently paid leave as of that article. So uh, the book's already had an impact. Um, and I think the way that the book is structured really highlights that behavior. You know, HBO made its name by telling stories about difficult men, quote unquote. Um, and I think that this book is really trying to analyze that about the behavior that was on screen and maybe some of the stuff that was happening behind the scenes that wasn't as discussed until now. So useful context for this conversation. Well, I'm here joined by Felix Gillette and John Koblen, the authors of the new book, It's Not TV. I have the book next to me to read the subtitle, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Uh, hi, guys. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks for having us. We don't usually get the uh, the joy of having other journalists on the show with us, um, but it's fun to get to do some shop talk um, mm -hmm. with you guys. And honestly, over the past few months, we've known this interview was going to come and there's been so many HBO and Warner Media and Discovery headlines have been like, OK, Felix and John are going to come and they're going to solve everything for us. But for you guys, you write this book. We know book scheduling, book publishing schedules move on their own pace. You knew I assume writing this book that the news would outpace you. How did you deal with that? And how has it felt watching these last few months of HBO Max Warner freakouts, knowing that um, your book was done and you just had to to roll with it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. On the one hand, obviously, there are going to be headlines, like stuff is just going to happen. And it did when HBO Max starts removing titles. Um, and all of a sudden, some Warner Brothers movies are put on the shelf. But on the other hand, like some of the many of the themes of the book, I feel like we are like well protected. Like once Netflix started taking its nosedive, which was very late in our writing process, one of the things we explore in the book is how HBO has survived one like near fatal blow after another. Corporate takeovers, the rise of the VCR, rise of streaming, and yet it continues to be continues to maintain its status as being a cut above everybody else. It's pretty impressive. So all that bad news happens in August. And then what does HBO do in September? Uh, cleans up at the Emmys. And HBO is also, within days, will premiere the latest season of The White Lotus. And based on all the reviews, including Richard's, uh, <laughs> critics seem to be really liking it. Yeah, I mean, thinking back to when we started working on this, it was really 2019. And at that point, HBO was, you know, its parent company is being taken over 
the AT&T guys are moving in. And at that point, we were like, is HBO going to exist by the time we finish this book? Like, what's going to happen? Like, is this whole thing going to be destroyed? And here we are three years later, and it, you know, turns out like HBO had this amazing 2021 and seems to be doing very strong uh, programming. And so in some ways that's surprising, but also I think exciting that the whole HBO playbook continues to be relevant and continues to push forward into this new era. Yeah, I mean, your book, I think, is very admiring of HBO in a lot of ways, because how could you not be as a fan of modern television and what they've done? But also, you're clearly taking on some of the darker parts of their legacy, which we can talk about. So just very basically, I'm curious about what your work with HBO on this was, what they participated in, what they didn't, what you had to show them, what you didn't. And and even just navigating that, knowing you're writing a definitive history about something and that they're not necessarily going to like everything that you dig up. I mean, it's funny because the current administration, Casey Bloys, the head of programming at HBO, he took over in 2016 and they were happy to, you know, have Casey participate. David Zasliff, the Discovery chief executive who has taken over HBO um, from the C-suite, happy to participate. And I think it's because in the last five, six, seven years, HBO has had a pretty good story to tell uh, just in terms of its programming output. Prior to the last six years, there's also 44 years of uh, HBO history <laughs> and a lot of uh, departed executives who we talked to. Yeah, there. I mean, going into it, we knew that HBO's story is very much an ensemble cast of characters and that there were going to be a ton of people we needed to talk to. And as it happened, we really started reporting the book right when the pandemic hit. And, you know, in some ways that was tough because John and I didn't get to go on trips together and hang out together in person. On the other hand, all these executives were kind of sitting around without too much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out from a reporting standpoint, um, a lot of people were in a kind of reflective mood and happy to kind of look back at their role in HBO in the you know, past several decades. I was dreading reporting a book uh, during the pandemic and via Zoom. I thought it was going to be a terrible experience. Turns out it's wonderful. I mean... <laughs> Like, A, it's a lot cheaper. B, people do talk. Like, they do talk over Zoom. I mean, one thing, so I cover television at the New York Times. That's my day job. And one of the things the late night producers uh, kept on uh, impressing upon me, the one good thing about the late night shows, everything was terrible for them amid the pandemic. But if there's one good thing, they said celebrity interviews are much better now Mm. because celebrities, when they are not getting themselves all dolled up and going to a studio, they're much more comfortable just sitting in their living room doing an interview with Colbert or Fallon. Yeah, I think we found that too. A lot of people, you just like caught them in, you know, May 2020 with nothing else to do and they'd really get reflective. And I'm imagining executives who've been, you know, out of the offices for 20 years and you know, no one's ever asked them about a grievance they might have from the 90s mm-hmm. and you get to get that. I mean, you describe it as a cast of characters and I think... For TV viewers or even fans of HBO, we're not instinctively going to think of Richard Plepler or Michael Fuchs or someone as being characters. But you guys, through details and I think through stories about them, find ways to make them come alive as people, which is not easy with a big cast of white guys. I mean, I I assume from the get-go you realize that you had to make them come alive as human beings to get the story to to flow. How'd you do it? Uh, I mean, I think we spent a lot of time talking to people and figuring out you know, how to weave all these different people together. And, you know, I think like someone like Richard Plepler said, 
you know, something to us that keeps resonating in my mind, which is like, there's not really a Richard Plepler philosophy or a Jeff Bucus philosophy or a Michael Fuchs philosophy. There's an HBO philosophy and all these different people participated and we had to, you know, bring them alive on the page. And we also kind of had to figure out while we were talking to them, what is that HBO playbook? What were those lessons? What were those decisions that were made? Why is this thing uh, managed to survive all these different near-death experiences over the years. And um, I don't know, it was kind of, there was a mystery to that and a fun part of the process just uncovering all that through these interviews. And one thing I'll say is, you know, on the one hand, Michael Fuchs is not a household name. Richard Plepler is a household name to people in the media, but not to anybody else. But all these pe- all these people made incredibly consequential and vital decisions for HBO. And just learning about that, like we couldn't help but want to get to know these people better. We wouldn't, we wanted to be able to describe it because within HBO and within Hollywood, the Michael Fuchses of the world, the Richard Plepplers of the world, people are care passionately about them. And if they do, we sort of did and wanted to give that back to the reader. Yeah. And someone like Sheila Evans, who is this legendary figure in the documentary world, I mean, she's a reporter's dream. Like you really, you just put on the tape recorder and she's just boom, boom, boom. Like everything that comes out of her mouth is this incredible quote and such charisma and such a great personality. Uh, So, so much fun talking to these people like Sheila. Yeah. Well, and then there's Chris Albrecht, who obviously made news. Your your book made news before it was even published because he's taken a leave of absence from his current role. Um, and I think some of the reporting around that was like, how could this one book about old news have had that effect? But you read the book and it, it's not an accident. Like he is a key through line drawn throughout HBO's history. Um, and you're really frank about the impact that his actions had on other people. Um, when did you realize how much of a central figure he was going to have to be and how you retold HBO's history? I think, you know, during the course of our reporting, you know, he played such a important role at the network, first kind of roping in all these comedians, people from the comedy world. Um, he was there at a pivotal point where HBO decided we're going to move from one-off events into series, um, you know, and, and all of this leading up to 2007 when he was arrested in Las Vegas uh, for assaulting his then-girlfriend. And, you know, so at some point we went back and we realized we kind of have to go and report what happened in Las Vegas. And several days after he was arrested, there was a story in the LA Times uh, that there had been an earlier incident in 1991. And, you know, we really wanted to not just understand what happened in those incidents, but also the culture that allowed these things to happen the culture inside HBO, the culture inside of Time Warner, the culture inside the industry, and uh, how this impacted both the women that were, you know, harmed in these attacks, but also brought more broadly other women that worked at HBO um, and in the company, and that ended up being a incredibly rich story. Uh, there was a lot about sexism in the industry and uh, at HBO in the 80s that I had really been unaware of before. And those kind of themes we followed deeply throughout the book um, because they have all these you know, permutations, not just in how it affected the office culture, but also what you end up seeing on screen 
from HBO over the years. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think it grew in importance the more we spent time reporting on the book. And one thing I would say, or one thing I would add is, you know, I've been covering television for nearly eight years now, and I had heard of the name Sasha Emerson, but I didn't know anything about Sasha Emerson. So really just like, what happened to these folks? Um, that was something that we were both just really interested in and curious about. And, you know, also in the course of the reporting, one thing that I think was really fascinating about HBO was the early days, you know, the idea was that we're going to do things differently than the broadcast networks. They're too powerful. They have too much money. We can't go head to head. We're not just going to do what they're doing. They give away the product for free. And there was this belief among early HBO executives, particularly Michael Fuchs, that, you know, the broadcast networks, uh, because they were supported by commercials, and the advertisers wanted to reach women, that the programming was slanted towards female viewers. And so to go in a different direction, HBO was going to tailor a lot of its programming to men. And that's why you end up getting uh, these late night documentaries with a lot of nudity. That's why you got um, so much female nudity in these adult sitcoms. It's why there was boxing. Uh, and you know that was sort of an explicit idea in the early days of HBO which at some point became much less explicit and yet continued to impact HBO both as a culture and as a programming force really for decades to come. And I think bringing that idea back up to the surface helps explain a lot of other things that happened at the company in the years to come. Um, and I think that was one of the really eye-opening things about working on this book. Yeah, there was a part of the book that I underlined and put exclamation marks next to. I think it's Chris Albrecht kind of talking about why he liked The Sopranos and why he wanted to champion. It's like Tony Soprano is a guy who struggles with his wife and his family and occasionally explodes in violence against the women in his life, which, I mean, that was a really pointed sentence that you guys included. But it, it felt like it it really highlighted not that everyone who was working at HBO who was a man had kind of similar issues as Chris Albrecht, but that like it's not an accident that it's a male heavy network and that it's men who are running it and that that becomes what defines good prestige television for decades. Yes. And also, there just wasn't a lot of female perspective in a lot of those shows for a really long time, nor were there many women creating HBO shows. I mean, I think that has begun to change a lot in the last 10 years, and you, there's definitely a slot in sort of the HBO programming lineup now, which is like the writer, performer, starting with girls and then, you know, I may destroy you. Um, but if you look back at the record, it is pretty shocking to me how few HBO dramas have been created by women. And again, I think that really, that there was a reason for that. You know, we, we tell the story back in the uh, 80s in the early days of HBO, still trying to figure out what the program is going to be that, you know, HBO had all these stand-up comics coming through and, a lot of them, there was a push to, you know, we want to get female comics. Um, John, you have this great story, remember, about Roseanne Barr, who performed uh, a stand-up performance on HBO. And what happened afterwards? Well, they, you know, her manager, agent was like, hey, we would love to do a show with you guys. And it just didn't go anywhere. It, it, it went nowhere. Instead, Roseanne packed up her stuff and went over to ABC. I mean, maybe this was just hiding in plain sight, but I was actually shocked at how much all of HBO's programming was tailored toward men. 
especially in the early 80s, and how difficult that was to shake off. I mean, Michael Fuchs, who is HBO's former chairman throughout the 1980s, going into the early 1990s, we have we quote him as saying, this is a network for men, and the woman of the house is going to watch what he watches. And other people in HBO's research departments echoed that, saying, a man controls the remote control, and the woman will watch what he watches. I mean, that's that's a hard legacy to shake off. And it really has taken decades, and it's still a work in progress. Well, and it's affected other places too, right? It's the reason Mad Men and Breaking Bad and like a whole, like other networks were following a male centric version of this. I mean, still, really. Yeah, I think what's fascinating now is to see that there has been the shift in like the last, I don't know, I would say the last three years where you're starting to see the primary archetype on a lot of HBO shows be these kind of flawed heroines. And you think about, you know, Sharp Objects, The Undoing, Big Little Lies. even Easton. Yeah, Mayor of Easton. Like a lot of them are now female protagonists, often investigating bad behavior on the part of men. And even in something like House of the Dragon, you know, the primary protagonist being a princess uh, dealing with like the patriarchy of Westeros. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting once you start seeing that, it really pops up across the programming slate. And, you know, I think that's a reaction to the market, you know, the anti heroes, the difficult men at some point, I think, became somewhat tired just because, like you said, you know, it wasn't just. Tony Soprano and Al Swearinger and, and you know, uh, Nucky Thompson of Boardwalk Empire. It spread out across the HBO programming landscape. And then, you know, it spread out across all of cable as these other networks like AMC and FX were explicitly saying, you know, we want to be the HBO basic cable. And they took that archetype and they made their own programs with it. And I think they were really popular for a long time. My sense is that's really kind of shifted now. I think in your book, the term the HBO shrug really helps unlock a lot of um, how they did that, because it really refers to budget, I think. But it kind of applies to in general being like, well, we're just going to do it. Do you think that it still exists in some form? And and if so, how, given all of the people that surrounded them, like how do they maintain that ability to kind of chase after the thing that they think will work, even if the data or the budget doesn't say so? Um, explain what the HBO shrug is for a second. Oh, sec. yeah, sorry. You guys can. <laughs> I, I didn't coin that um, phrase. I mean, it was like, it really was born out of the like early 2000s, late 90s when HBO was like, wait, what would the budget be for this? Oh, we need 110 million, not 80 million. And it's like, man, just do it. Literally shrugging. Go ahead, give them their 30 million. Similarly, when David Chase was about to make The Sopranos, he insisted on shooting in New Jersey, which is a lot more expensive than shooting in, say, Pasadena or Vancouver. And HBO was like, yeah, sure. And one of the reasons is because Chris Albrecht, then running HBO's programming efforts, said, you know, we wanted people to realize we're for real and they'll believe we're for real if we're shooting in a place like New Jersey. Fast forward, what? how does the HBO shrug exist today? It does not exist as the same level insofar as HBO is not spending more than Netflix. HBO is not spending more than Apple. HBO at times is not spending more than Amazon. However, with that said, HBO has a very healthy budget. It can go after what it wants. And just like you said, Katie, whereas Netflix is fundamentally a data science and technology company, even though they want to call themselves these days as an entertainment company and really, really insist that that's what they are, 
you know, they do look at the algorithm. They do look at what their subscribers are watching, and it does help inspire future programming choices. And HBO is unique, um, especially compared to the tech companies, in just really going with their gut, going with intuition, trusting the artists in their stable. Yeah, and I think part of that is just you look back at the way HBO operated its business, they were always a wholesaler. Their clients were always the cable operators around the country. And those cable operators were the ones who maintained the relationship with the customers. HBO never knew who their customers were. So there was no question of, oh, we're going to check with our customers and listen to what they want to see next. They couldn't do it. They had no idea. So they had to develop another way. And the way they developed was when they finally decided, okay, we're going to take on the broadcast and we're going to shift from doing these one-off events like stand-up comedy and music concerts and boxing matches and original movies. We're going to move into this serialized space because it's a better way of holding on to subscribers. Um, and they said, well, how are we going to do that? You know, the, the broadcast networks have a lot more money than us. They can deliver a much bigger audience. Why does anyone want to work with us? And the answer they came up with over time was, well, we can give these seasoned TV writers and creators a lot more freedom. And, you know, all the rules that you've been butting your head up against for years in broadcast television in terms of dealing with political issues, sexual issues, um, in terms of being told to, you know, make the subtext of your characters more clear, in terms of making them more likable. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to give you kind of more of a free reign. We're going to take off those guardrails. And that was an incredibly appealing idea to a lot of creators who'd spent years in broadcast television. If you look back at that first incredible run of original series that HBO had, in the mid-90s and early 2000s, they all came from people who were seasoned in broadcast television. So it was all David Chase, you know, with Creative Sopranos, had been working in broadcast television. Darren Starr, the creator of Sex and the City, had made uh, Melrose Place and 90210 for Fox. Um, you know, Tom Fontana, who created Oz, had made Homicide for NBC. And so I think that model because they didn't have data to rely on. They had to trust the artist. They had to give the artist, you know, that's an idea we haven't heard before. We want a point of view, go explore that. Um, and it turned out to be incredibly powerful. That combined with the HBO shrug and kind of saying, okay, we'll give you the resources. Um, we're going to put the money on screen. Um, that turned out to be an incredibly powerful uh, insight. And it's kind of the same thing that has continued on and kept them going for the past 25 years. Yeah, I mean, you talk now about them being in competition with Apple and Amazon and Netflix, like the, the tech companies are their competition. And in your book, there's all these kind of sliding doors moments where they might have been able to buy Netflix in the early 2000s or might have launched HBO Max or HBO Go, some version of that much earlier and AOL kind of made all that impossible. Did you kind of let yourselves think of this alternate universe in which HBO was a major digital player way earlier? Or is that a foolish thought experiment that doesn't get you anywhere? Yeah, I think it was really fun to think about those alternate histories of what would have happened. I mean, it's funny when you talk to the people that were inside HBO pitching the idea of buying Netflix in 2005, 2006. I mean, this is earlier. This is before Netflix even had streaming. This is back in the DVD by mail day. But they, you know, they did their proposal, got nowhere, it got shot down incredibly quickly, in part because 
there were so many people that had gone through the AOL Time Warner merger, which was so disastrous. And a lot of the takeaway from that was like, oh, these internet people, these visionaries are just total fakers. Like, you know, and there was so much internal resistance to those ideas. And yeah, it's fun to think about, well, what would have happened? But even those people that were pushing the idea of like, you know, let's buy Netflix and combine and we'll have, you know, path to the consumer. Even they were like, well, you know, yes, what do you think would have happened? And they're like, well, if Time Warner had bought it, they probably would have destroyed it pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's sort of the thing. That's where, where it's kind of hard to picture that, like, you know, alternate universe of like, what would this look like? Because Time Warner was such a traditional company, a don't rock the boat company. Um, and given the context of the disaster of the AOL merger, and given the, the context of what that company was like, which really did, did prize profits, it's tempting to think about them buying Netflix. But, you know, it's also, it, it's not surprising that, that that did not go very far. Yeah. I think it's also fun to hear about, like, the alternate programming possibilities. Like, it shows that ideas that were kicking around that never got made. Um, yeah, did you guys ever get anything on the corrections pilot, or was that a, was it a pilot or a movie? Even I can't remember. I believe it was a pilot. We did not. I honestly, <laughs> I forgot about yesteryear's <laughs> controversy, the uh, what happened to corrections, <laughs> and what happened to the Diane Keaton Nikki Fink show. Well, um, that makes a cameo, so I, that's what made me think of it because that's you know been one of the other great white whales that we uh, want to see someday. These like the, these early 2010 HBO shows, which, yeah, I mean, frankly, <laughs> I would watch both in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like that was in, in the pandemic when no one was in production. It was like, HBO, just put it out there. No, you got nothing else. Just let us see these <laughs> things at long last. Um, so one of the themes of the book and something you guys have come back to a couple of times is just that, you know, HBO has survived this much. They've been around for 50 years, had a series of, you know, owners who may or may not have known what they were doing. So for people who kind of panicked over all the Discovery Plus HBO Max thing where, you know, I think someone like said that in the cafeteria, they're like, well, what's going to happen to Hacks now that it's being canceled because HBO Max is going away? There's a, such a panic over it. But it sounds like you, after reporting this book, have determined that HBO is likely to survive kind of almost no matter what at this point. Yeah, in the short term, it's it's completely, it's going to be fine because those same programming executives led by Casey Bloys are still there. And Casey recently uh, re-upped his contract. He's there for another five years. With that said, Discovery has a debt load of more than $50 billion. That's why we saw all that trouble with HBO Max in August because every corner of that company is getting cuts. And it, the thing that was not affected was HBO Proper's programming team. If at some point in the next year or two or three years or four years where they do have to cut that, you know, then all of a sudden for the first time we can set off, you know, a five alarm fire about what's happening with HBO. Because even AT&T, which assumed ownership of HBO a few years ago, you know, there are all these great fears like, oh, my God, when are they going to wreck HBO? I mean, I, I remember writing a story at The Times about the first Richard Plepler, John Stanky, John Stanky, the former uh, chief executive, excuse me, current chief executive at and former head of like Warner Media's entertainment division. You know, it was like a town hall that did not go well. Oh yeah, and, very like, memorable in your book too, about the how they're dressed differently, all the vibes are off. <laughs> yeah, like um, they are completely opposites, completely opposites. And I remember when I popped that first story, People were like, oh, my God, don't you dare touch my HBO. 
And it was the first time where I really had experienced like, wow, people are very passionate about HBO as a brand in this like era where what do brands matter? People cared. And likewise, when all those, you know, when all that stuff was happening, HBO Max in August, when you add it all up, like, you know, HBO is still HBO, even with all that drama in August. And as you said, Katie, all these false rumors about hacks could go away. It was the second time where I was like, oh my God, HBO as a brand is something that people really, really care about, like passionately. And Discovery knows that too, it seems. Like no one would be quite crazy enough to kill that yet. On the one hand, yes, they know it intuitively. On the others, this is a company that, you know, for decades has made really cheap, unscripted content. And, you know, David Zasloff, the current chief executive, you know, he comes from the Jack Welch school. Um, And this, on the one hand, they know it intuitively. On the other, if all of a sudden they need a lot of money in a hurry, you could start to nip and tuck here and there, and that would be a serious problem. Yeah, the trend I'm kind of most interested in moving forward is, you know, all the streamers are under pressure. You know, Netflix has watched its stock get crushed this year. And, you know, they're all under pressure to find other ways of making money, other revenue streams besides just subscriptions. So what do they naturally look towards? Well, they look towards advertising, right? And so Netflix has got their ad-supported service that's coming out soon and atrio max is you know an, a, a lower cost uh, ad supported tier um so far those advertisements have not popped up on hbo or within hbo programming but it is kind of instrumental to think back that like all of this revolution and programming that happened at hbo and all of this incredible television was made without advertising without sponsors looking over their shoulders without sponsors interfering and that allowed the creative freedom to touch on all these things that were kind of verboten in broadcast television, AIDS, uh, abortion, gun control, um, shows set in prison, violence, you know, all this stuff. And I'm curious, like, at some point, that advertising feels like it's got its foot in the door in these services. And I will be very curious to see what happens the further you know, the more pressure these services come under to to sell more advertising, does that at some point start to uh, creep in on the programming decisions? Do you think that the difference between HBO and HBO Max is going to last much longer? That's always felt to me like the weird redundancy that someone's going to have to clean up. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good question. I mean, one of the things we learned, like through all the, you know, there were 70, 80 some odd jobs that were lost in August at HBO, mostly at HBO Max. But they started to clarify what HBO Max is going to be. It's going to be more genre. It's going to be from, they're going to do DCIP. And I don't know if you are going to see a lot more of, say, Hacks, which Hacks, on the one hand, you know, very much a premium show. I would argue there is something about it that doesn't feel HBO-y. There is Mm. something about it that feels more HBO Max-y. There is like a slight distinction, but that sort of programming is going to fall under the HBO proper umbrella and Max will become more of your genre. It'll be, it'll be different. So, you know, on the one hand, we'll know that when there's like a Penguin uh, series from, you know, from Batman, that that doesn't seem very HBO. Uh, that's more HBO Max. But I think that's where the distinctions are going to be, where we will find the distinctions most. 
I think it's still a branding problem because I think the idea of taking HBO, which had such a distinctive brand and meant something so specific for so long. And, you know, they decided when they rolled out this Netflix competitor, this broader streaming service, that they were going to take the name. And I think in the book we refer to this as a mastige uh, strategy where you take (laughs) a prestige brand and then you make it broader. And, you know, in the short term, the appeal of doing that, and retailers have been doing that for decades, it's it's a fairly common move because you can take the high price premium thing and then you can start selling it at a lower price point to a lot more people. And in the short term, I think that's a perfectly good and safe and, and smart strategy. The problem is that over time, it erodes the meaning of the original brand. And I think the longer you name the thing that is the big umbrella streaming company, HBO Max, the broader you're going to have to make that, the less HBO means as a name and as brand. And I think that's going to be a challenge for Warner Brothers Discovery in the next phase because you're really looking at a lot of saturation in the U.S. market. The next big phase is like going overseas and trying to pick up subscribers in countries around the world. And HBO as a brand really doesn't have much of any brand recognition outside of the United States. And so it will be interesting to see if during this period of time where they're looking to launch and go bigger in overseas markets, do they rethink wanting to have HBO at the forefront of that? Or do you fold that back into a a, a prestige brand within it? And, and let's just quickly consider HBO Max might not exist in six months, seven months. It'll be Discovery, Discovery Max or right. whatever. Precisely. Yeah. Or Shark Plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, but Discovery isn't that premium brand you're talking about. That's the whole thing, right? Like figuring out how to keep the really glossy HBO stuff, but also have Discovery that everyone actually watches, I guess. Mm-hmm. A lot of people watch it. My my betting money is that they wind up calling the, the combined service something like Max and drop the HBO out of it. Yeah but still have the White Lotus and has the dragon and everything on there. Under the, like, you know, if the Disney Plus equivalent of the Star Wars, Marvel, Nat Geo tile, there'll be the HBO tile next to, yeah. you know, TLC or whatever. Do you think that it'll just be people like our age who remember tuning in to Sex and the City live on a cable provider who will think of, like, that distinction of, like, this is an HBO thing and this is a Max thing? Or, do you, like, is, are, are people going to age out of that entirely of having any association there? It's a really good question. I, I I think the jury is out. On the one hand, intuitively, I want to say, yes, we will be the last. But on the other, like, I don't know. And maybe it's because we all do this for a living, like watch television. <laughs> but like, to me, they're like, even the Apple TV Plus shows, like, I know they don't super premium, very expensive, lots of stars, but they feel different from HBO shows. Severance. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like an HBO show to me. Really good show, just somehow different. And you know, kudos to Apple TV Plus for like establishing an identity in you know less than three years. Um, so I think I will continue <laughs> to like look at these differences and understand them uh, and be interested by them. But yes, if you're 15, you know, is Euphoria a quote unquote HBO show or could it be truly anywhere? It could have been on Netflix. I don't know. That's a really good question. 
Um, well, Felix and John, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book. People can buy it anywhere, so they should. Uh, and please keep your great reporting on HBO. We need you to guide us through these turbulent waters. Thank you, Katie. Thanks so much, Katie. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD. You can email us at littlegoldben at VF.com. We would really love to hear from you. We've loved hearing from you thus far. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylas. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our Little Gold Men guest policy goes to David Canfield. It's, it's legends only. Legends only. <laughs> <laughs>